So, Jonathan, can you like introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so my name is uh, Jonathan Weekly. I am uh, originally from New Zealand or Aotearoa. Uh, born and bred in Christchurch, and uh, did um, went after school went to uh, Otago University where I studied uh, sports specialized nutrition. After that, I um, was very very fortunate to have the opportunity to go do dietetics at uh, University of Wollongong. Uh, at the same time, um, and that was a, that was a master of dietetics, which that um, just for for context. Um, but then I I also had the fort uh, the fortune of being able to study um, strength conditioning at Edith Cowan, the, the masters over Edith Cowan at the same time. So I was kind of balancing both those degrees and uh, trying to bring um, sports nutrition and exercise together. Um, and then after that, I was uh, again very fortunate to cross paths with my um, with my supervisor, a lad named Ben Jones. And, uh, and and my co-supervisor, Kevin Till. And I was given the opportunity to go over to Leeds and do a PhD in uh, human performance, biomechanics physiology, uh, even blended some um, psychology in there for my PhD over in Leeds, working with uh, England Rugby. And then I did a postdoc over there, over in uh, England, before um, I decided to come back to the, the South Pacific and now base myself in southeast queensland where i'm a researcher and practitioner at australian catholic university so uh, i i genuinely believe i've got the best job in the world i'm very fortunate i've got a great group of phd students i work with and uh just a generally great team um and also great great people to network with like yourself but also um from industry so i'm really really fortunate to be doing what i do eric and i'm very very grateful and as i, I said several times fortunate you know, it's uh, everything's really, really fell into place. A lot of hard work, but it's um, been a great journey so far. Love that, love that, love that. So, um, the the first question I want to ask is about the paper you uh wrote about like velocity based training. Mm-hmm. So, like, can you like give us like a, some thoughts about like how how you're gonna use like VBT or like velocity based training and your thoughts on like uh, the velocity lost as a as a training threshold. Yeah, sure. So, um, first and foremost, um, velocity based training is kind of a method. You know, it, it's we defined it in the paper back in 2000, uh, 2020, 2021, and it's pretty much saying that velocity based training is a method of resistance training that uses velocity to enhance training practice. So first and foremost, it's not percentage-based training versus velocity-based training. It's not, oh, I'm a VBT guy, or oh, I'm I'm new and progressive. I use VBT. That that's that's not the case. And I've seen, um, let's just say, some old old school individuals saying, oh, VBT doesn't work, and it's not it's not real, and it's a myth. Well, um. It does work because it follows the basic fundamental tenets of physics and physiology. And often when they hear those sorts of things, uh, people saying, oh, it's, you know, it doesn't work or, you know, it doesn't work for this exercise or people jerk the bar or something like that. It more says about their understanding of physics and physiology or their coaching um, capacity. So first and foremost, VBT is based around um, three 
very fundamental tenets that as bars get heavier, bars go slower. As you exercise, bars go slower. And for all exercises, there's what we call a terminal velocity. And that terminal velocity is where you can no longer exercise uh, below. So, for example, in the squat, you can't do squats, which is 0.15 meters per second. It's impossible. You know, and that's for everyone. You, me, elderly, young, children, male, female, you know, black, white, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. So VBT is kind of a method which enhances training practice. You can use it alongside RPE, RIR, PBT. And we've got a great study which actually shows that soon. Um, and uh, it has a range of different methods that you can use. So, for example, feedback. You can use velocity to provide feedback. There's a very simple method of velocity-based training because it uses velocity to enhance training practice. And we've just done a meta-analysis on this recently that shows that if you provide feedback acutely, i.e. during training, you have approximately 8.4% uh, improvement in training quality. Now, I've trained people for years to get two, three, four percent improvements. Now, if I can get immediately eight percent improvements, that's a good bang for your buck, right? So, yeah, um, <laughs> so we know that we know that we can use feedback to improve acute performance, but we also know that velocity-based training or velocity can be used to moderate loads. It can be used to alter the load so you have appropriate physiological stimulus or the external stimulus, so the kinetic and kinematic. Uh, you know, uh, stimulus on the athlete. It can be used to monitor athletes. It could be used for periodization or programming. It can be used for testing. So velocity-based training is a range of things. Now, so that's first and foremost, the first part of your question. Second part was velocity loss thresholds. Now, velocity loss thresholds use those three fundamental tenets of bars go slower, bars, you know, bars go slower as you exercise, bars go slower when they're heavier, and there's a terminal velocity loss threshold. So if we know there's a terminal velocity loss threshold, so the final point, and we know that bars go slower or get faster, get faster as they get lighter or slower as it gets heavier, we know how far away they are from failure. Therefore, we can say, how about doing X percent velocity loss threshold? So for example, a 10% velocity loss threshold on a load that equals 0.7 meters per second would be 0.7 minus 10% of 0.7, so 0 0.63. 20%, 0.56, And what this does, and we've shown this conclusively, is that it causes an internal response, which is highly reliable. Now, we need to get out of the mindset and resistance training in SNC that, oh, you know, eight... Eight reps, nine reps, ten reps, because eight reps one day might feel easy, but eight reps another day might feel hard. And there's been recent research saying, oh, velocity loss thresholds don't allow the same number of repetitions across sessions. Yeah, we knew this. We knew this ten years ago. I've shown this four or five times in my papers over and over and over. We know this. This, is, this has been well covered. But the internal response is what drives the physiological adaptation. So I don't care about how many repetitions you're doing. I don't care at all. I don't give a hoot. What I care about is the internal response that drives the physical adaptation. I don't care if you're doing 10 reps one day, eight, day, eight reps another day, as long as the internal response is the same. And I think the paper you're referring to is a paper uh, that referred to the, loss, the, the application of velocity loss thresholds. 
internal responses. And what that paper showed that you can do it one day, you can do a 10, 20, 30% velocity loss threshold in the free weight back squat. Then you can send your athletes away. You can send them away for however long you want. They can do whatever sort of training you want. And then they come back and do that same training again. You have a 10, 20, 30% velocity loss threshold. And we have almost identical outcomes. Now that's important because if my internal response is the same, that means my physiological adaptation will hopefully be the same too. So that's essential. That's called reproducibility. And what we have in the SNC work, uh, SNC literature, is a lack of reproducibility. Let me put it like this. If I program, uh, Eric, you, you know, you, you coach athletes, you, you know what it's like. If I ask you to do five sets of 10 at the start of preseason, at 70% of 1RM, let's say, and then I ask you to come back at the end of preseason and do five sets of 10 at 70%, the first session you'll probably feel bloody sore. I can probably guarantee you that you'll be a little bit detrained. As you train up, you do the same session, five sets of 10 at 70%. You probably won't feel sore because you've adapted to that training. So if I program one thing, and then I program the same thing, and I'm having different responses, doesn't that scream that we've got an issue with training prescription? Surely. Surely. I cannot control the response. It's like going to a doctor and say, doctor, I've got a headache. And the doctor saying, hey, take two neurofins. It'll get rid of your headache. And then quietly he says, or it might kill you. You know what I mean? That, 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 that's, not, that's, not, that's not good practice because we're having different outcomes. So the thing is, is what we can show with velocity loss thresholds is the same internal response. And I'll give you a little peek, uh, sneak peek at something. We've actually got a paper about to come out soon, which shows the fatigue response is the same. So if we know the internal response during training, the fatigue response is the same. And geez, bloody hell, we're able to control training like no one has ever done. And that's essential. Again, I don't care if you can do eight or 10 reps on different days. What I care is if your blood response is the same, if your muscle response is the same, if your perceptual response is the same, because that's what really matters. And that's where velocity-based training takes off. I love that. I love that. So uh, uh, let's see if I'm understanding this right. Yep. So... Uh, if I'm, let's say, if I'm going through, like, like you mentioned, like, uh, five, let's say five sets of five yep. squat at the, let's say, at the first week of the season. Yep. And yep. it doesn't matter, the weight doesn't matter as long as, this, let's say, the velocity threshold I'm using is the same. Let's say, start of the season and end of the season. If it's, yep. if, if we stick with the velocity threshold, the velocity loss, let's say like eight, like you mentioned, eight percent, ten percent, the weight's gonna go higher, but the velocity basically are the same. So the internal response, the muscle soreness are it's gonna be the same. Am I right? If we think about low velocity profile, and let's say you're getting stronger, well, velocity doesn't respond to strength if you're just getting stronger the bar goes faster so you just put more load on so getting people out of the mindset that you now go 100 kilograms on that bar 120 kilograms on that bar sport is 
sport is absolutes. It's not, oh, Eric, you're playing a game of rugby, chuck 120 kilograms on your back and let's see how many reps you do. It's about moving with speed. And the thing is, is that if the bar's going faster one day, okay, great. Chuck a little bit more weight on. But as long as you're controlling how close you're getting to failure, which we can do with velocity, because we've got that terminal point, and you're letting them exercise down to that, close to that terminal point, well, the distance between finishing exercise and the terminal velocity will always be the same because velocity is velocity. But if you're prescribing a random number of repetitions, oh, Eric, you're going to do eight reps. Well, guess what? You might be able to do 10 reps. You might be able to do only six reps, and you're driving them to beyond failure. So what we're saying is that with velocity loss threshold, you can control the proximity to failure. And when you control that proximity to failure, irrespective of training history, whether they're detrained or highly trained, you have the right outcomes. You have the same outcome, reproducibility. And there's only one study that has shown that you can reliably induce a physiological response in SNC. And that's that applications of velocity loss thresholds paper. That's one paper. And I'm just going to break it down even a little bit further. I've done training intervention, uh, training, looking at acute intervention. So supersets. My whole PhD was based around supersets for some reason. I love it. It's, it's an obs obscure topic to investigate. Now, I could show you that supersets have a blood lactate of this, you know, let's say eight millimoles, it's just a random number. But if I get them to come back and do the training, same training session a week later, how confident that am I that the blood response, the lactate response, sorry, will be eight millimoles? How confident? Not very confident. Not very confident. Because I'm not controlling things. I'm, they, they might feel really good that day. But velocity doesn't care for that. Velocity is velocity. And if you're controlling how much fatigue they're inducing, you're having the same outcome, brother. And that, that's the fundamental tenet. And that, that's why that's why it just drives me nuts when people are going, oh, you know, oh, well, you know, they're not reliable. They're doing eight reps one day and 11 reps another day. It's like, come on, guys. I thought we solved this years ago. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fundamental physics, right? It's like physics, like bars go slower. Yeah, velocity. And physiology. If you can understand physics and physiology, you're probably going to be able to understand SNC. Love that. Love that, man. Love this approach. Love this so much. That, I think I think that's gonna pro uh that's probably gonna solve like not really solve because like you mentioned, like you said, we've discussed this like years ago, but it's gonna it's gonna it's it's gonna probably end the discussion about like is it reliable or not? Because yes. I I have the same I have the same like thoughts. As you mentioned, like I don't, I don't think that like <laughs> that matters that much. Yeah, what the, what the hell's eight reps? Hey, why not nine reps? You humor me, you know what I mean? Why not p p equals zero point zero four nine? Like you know, like yeah. it's dichotomous, man. It's it's black or white in SNC all the time, but it's not, man. <laughs> it's not. It's just it's just mind numbing, eh? And. I'll be honest, the reason why we're stuck in that is because we teach that. Now, I'm based at a university. I'm in my university office. It's great. But the thing is, is that even our courses, the courses that I teach into, you know, they go, oh, you know, hypertrophy occurs at 10 to 12 reps. So, really? What if you're, what if you're a sprinter? What if you're an <laughs> endurance athlete? You yeah, know what man. I mean? It's like, man, like, mate, you prescribe Usain Bolt 
12 reps, man, he's going to, his knees are going to break. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like, like I, I, I just would never do it. But because people are different and it's okay to be different, it's okay to be different. And we need to understand these differences and we need to be able to prescribe appropriately. Some people who hypertrophy really fast, they, you know, they have real type two muscle fibers. They often fatigue faster because of basic human physiology. And I've got new, I've got one clear example from, and working with rugby players, big, um, big Samoan dude who was, uh, you know, his legs were like tree trunks. But if we did too much volume, you know, it, it just wasn't beneficial for him. So we prescribed lower volumes, but he would grow faster than people with higher volumes. So it's kind of just saying, how can we control these differences and acknowledge these differences and accept our differences? And that's where vol- velocity is really strong, uh, really good. So yeah, right. that's why that's why I believe it, man. So no, it, it's good, and I I genuinely think that once we can get out of this mindset of oh, you know, three sets of ten, you know, five sets of five, you know, because that that's nothing. That 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 is absolutely nothing. Why why five? Why ten? It seems suspicious. Humans love round numbers, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, since you brought up like hypertrophy, um, yeah, yeah. is it is it is it the same when you mentioned you talk on like the paper about like uh muscle hypertrophy is affected by volume load progression model. Oh yeah, yeah. Like um, I know what you're referring to here, and that that's that Sportsmith um blog I wrote on. Yeah, now yeah. I, I uh, Rob Rob Pacey's a great friend of mine. He's a great guy, hugely personal, loving pieces, and um um because it's quite public forum, I was quite reserved on on. Are really calling out that paper, but um, you know that paper which I reviewed, you can probably see I, I was uh, questioning the scientific methodology wasn't that great, um, and that's okay. And I, I detail why it's not that great, and I'm more than happy to discuss that more thoroughly if it's required. But the thing is, is that probably stepping away from that paper is that hypertrophy is really easy. It's a really easy concept. Because fundamentally, first principles, it's all based around mechanical tension of fibers, muscle fibers and muscles. And the thing is, is if we can provide sufficient stimulus to those those muscle fibers and induce a given amount of fatigue, we cause muscle hypertrophy. Um, And and what works for one individual will not work for another individual. Well, what might be optimal for another individual and it's really important to remember that just because uh, you know um, it works for you, it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean it's best for me. But but at the heart of it, it's about mechanical tension and inducing a given amount of fatigue. And the easiest way to do that is through providing sufficient volume. You can induce equal amounts of muscle hypertrophy with heavy loads or light loads. We've got a paper with Stu Phillips and uh, Brad Schoenfeld uh, coming out uh, shortly, talking about this sort of topic. Um, and that, that, that conversation is well established. We know that for a fact. But the reason we can do that is because we can provide sufficient stimulus to the muscle, mechanical tension onto those fibers. So it doesn't really matter the load on the bar or really how you progress it to an extent. The most important thing is providing mechanical tension and inducing sufficient fatigue. And you can do that by training in close proximity to failure. 
So that's, uh, that, that's, that's a very simplified way of approaching it. Um, I tell you what, it works. It works because it's basic physiology. So does, I mean, even if, even if it's for like guys like sprinter or like a rugby player, they need like speed. Even so, training clothes at like close to fatigue. Yeah, like 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 it's 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 a it's a nuanced conversation. Let's be honest. You know, it's it's hard to just say I oh, train close to fatigue, right? It, it, it is fundamentally that's correct, but to a point. Now let's look at uh, weightlifters, really explosive athletes, not powerlifters, weightlifters. Um, and they don't do really, really high volumes. Their, their sets are often quite low, you know, but they what they do is they have quite heavy loads on those bars, right? And that provides sufficient mechanical tension. And when you've got sufficient mechanical tension, uh, tension you're going to be able to drive adaptation. Because when you've got a large amount of load on the bar, you're already probably in quite close proximity to the failure. You know, you can't do, you know, if you're working at 87% of your 1RM, realistically, if you do three reps, you've only got a couple on the tank probably. So the thing is, is that it's about providing sufficient mechanical tension. So if, you provide, if you're lifting over 80%, realistically, you're going to be recruiting almost all the muscle, if not all the muscle, right? But if you're going to be doing lower loads, you're probably going to be dry, you're going to be needing to do higher volumes, which drive you closer to uh, proper pro proximity to failure. So, um, yeah. Now, naturally, there's a lot of nuance in this, but it's fundamentally based around mechanical mechanical tension on the muscle fibers. And there's lots of different ways to do that, but realistically, if we can do more volume to a point. You're going to be driving greater um, hypertrophy, and there's a reason why bodybuilders use so much volume in their training, right? Yeah, there's a reason why sets of twelve are probably going to be better than sets of three. The reason is is because you're doing more volume, providing more mechanical tension over time, and getting closer to failure or proximity to failure. I will no, I'm not saying go to failure all the time. Well, there might be a place for it. It just there's a time and place, right? Love that, love that, love that. So, uh, the next thing I want to discuss is also from the uh, article with like the post on like PC performance is like uh the jump squat. Yeah. So how is yeah? So how would you like uh program jump squat? And when and like. I want to program it now. This is a real nuanced question again. Um, and that in that in that Sportsmith article um, with Rob, it's um, we were talking about momentum-based training, and um, you know, the author of that paper I consider a friend and a great researcher. Um, you know, but however, as 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 I pointed out in that paper, there are there were issues with that paper, fundamental issues with that paper. Um, respectfully, it's um. So, so when we are prescribing and when we are trying to develop muscular power, the ability to express force quickly and be able to produce power, we need to remember what we're looking at. 
we need to be able to produce high amounts of force and we need to be able to be moving quickly. And there's a great paper that's uh, back in the day talking about a mixed methods approach. You need to do the stuff at the fast end and stuff at the heavy end. You can't just be a fast guy. You need to be a fast and strong guy, right? You know, um, so we need to have the full force velocity curve. Or more importantly, you need to train across the entire load velocity profile. So load velocity is probably more appropriate because you can actually program from that. So force velocity is a bit of a, bit of a misnomer in training, actually. People use that and they think they're talking about something that they're not really. So I prefer to talk about load velocity because that's more fun. That's based in physics and, and more useful for coaches. So if I was to prescribe plyometric exercises or trying to make my athletes as explosive as possible, and we know that we need to train across an entire spectrum of loads, which we know that's, that's well established now, that's really proven because of human anatomy, human physiology, and just basic physics, I'd be using a low velocity profile and understanding and trying to expose them to the whole profile across their training program. So we'd be trying to program fast exercises and try and program slow exercises. But if I'm trying to make them powerful, the key is to make sure that they're using maximal intent because maximal intent or the ability to really explode is really important to recruiting all your muscle and being able to train the individual to be explosive. So rather than saying, oh, well, while it's great, I will acknowledge that you can um, you can have very effective ways of doing it without velocity and monitoring changes in load. You say, for example, you could just do heavy squats and you know jump squats with no load. For me personally, I'd be going, all right, we're going to be doing you know training around these speeds today, and I'm going to try and get them exploding. All right, but next week we might be training at these speeds. So my, from my perspective, it's a simple way to ensure that we're training athletes across the entire spectrum of velocities, because that's what we need, you know. So yeah. I uh, I don't I don't understand why people would try and complicate a very simple simple thing. Just train them across the entire spectrum, and they will likely improve. Yeah, I love this. I love this. I love this. So uh, I'm going to jump into the next topic, which yeah. is like the main reason I like reach out to you. And uh, like, I think it's a few months ago, like artists posted like the same, the same, um, some, some article about the same topic. And it was like really interesting. So I, find that I probably should like reach out to you and discuss this is about like how like in what degree does like menstrual like uh let me check menstrual cycle gonna affect our training and yeah. how should coaches should should deal with that because like there's there, there's always gonna be some like uh some athletes that yeah. They probably don't feel a thing, yeah, but at sure. the same time, they're probably going to be athletes. They feel like shit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And it's um, first and foremost, um, it's okay to have differences, and you know, fe- you know, for female athletes who are different stages of the menstrual cycle, different fe- uh, females will have different 
um, experiences with the menstrual cycle and it will affect their training to a different extent. Um, I'll also note that, um, uh, you know, some contraceptives, uh, contraceptives, so oral contraceptives, for example, can alter their hormonal profile. Now, we need to get out on the table because it's been discussed a lot recently is that currently there is no evidence to suggest that we should train athletes differently at different stages of their menstrual cycle. So first of all, it's really important to get that out there. You know, if you're, uh, if someone's saying, oh, I've got the perfect answer, you know, do this and this week and this and this week and this and this week, you're trying to sell you something and you should run a mile. Um, yeah, so first and foremost, but I, um, just because we have no evidence doesn't mean it's not a thing. They're not the same thing. So just there's no evidence doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Okay. Now, just because we've got no evidence doesn't mean Bigfoot doesn't exist. Jeez, come on, guys. Like, it could be out there. Maybe he is blurry. I don't know. The thing is, is that, so we need to understand is that we currently have no evidence to support the notion that we need to tra train athletes at, differently at different stages of the menstrual cycle. Currently, we have no strong evidence to suggest that female athletes perform differently, like in a testing battery, at different stages of the menstrual cycle. The reason for this is because of the methodologies and the studies that have tried to investigate this. And the reason that the methodologies have been flawed or we don't have the research to support this is because it's blimmin' hard. It's really hard to follow gold standard research methodology that assesses the menstrual cycle. It's really hard. So the thing is, is what we need to, to assess is through proper hormonal verification are females performing differently at different stages of the menstrual cycle. Now, I'm going to give a little shout out to a couple of my PhD students here. We have Maddie Pearson and Gabriella Montiano. Yeah, Maddie is doing testing across the menstrual cycle with proper gold standard hormonal verification. And Gabby, absolutely bless her, she's just kicking the study off, is that she's training women depending upon their menstrual cycle for follicular and luteal phases, and they're changing the volumes and the frequency of training depending on the menstrual cycle phase. There's additionally one thing I haven't touched upon, is how you feel can often impact training performance and adaptations. And we've already acknowledged that some females feel great and it doesn't affect them. And some females feel terrible at different stages. So what we've got in this study by Gabby, um, and she, she's a great, she's not only a great student, she's a great human and she's got a great work ethic, is that we're investigating changes in training performance, physical adaptation and sleep and recovery across the menstrual cycle, depending on whether we have a traditional model. So, you know, you train three times a week, here's your loads, away you go, let's go do it a menstrual cycle phase-based approach, which talks about which changes the training based on the hormones of the female at that specific time, follicular versus luteal, because we know that these hormones change and potentially they might be more anabolic or they might help drive different adaptations. 
And another one, which I think is really cool too, is based off their perception of how they're feeling, like an auto-regulatory approach, we manipulate training. And this study by Gabby is super exciting because it, everything's controlled. We're looking after these females. We're coaching them one-on-one, -on -one, but we've also got the gold standard hormonal verification and we've got gold standard measures throughout the entire training process. So for me, it's a really, really exciting um, set of studies that we're doing here up on the, the at Sprint, uh, Australian Catholic University in the Sprint Research Centre uh, in Brisbane. We've got some phenomenal um, PhD students investigating it. And I, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the outcomes. Now, Eric, I will acknowledge as well that you're probably referring to that paper I um, uh, reviewed on Sportsmith again. And that, that paper, uh, while helped push us a little bit further, unfortunately was, uh, or fortunately, because they're actually trying it and good on them for trying it, was that they're, um, as a pilot study first and foremost, but also they're not using gold standard hormonal verification. So they cannot be certain that these females are in certain phases of the menstrual cycle. And that's where that paper is going to fall over because it's not ensuring that the females are actually in the state phases that they say they are. While they're having a crack, it's not quite what we need yet. So if we're going to be investigating changes across the menstrual cycle, we need to have a really good understanding of the endogenous hormonal profile of the athletes who are actually in that study. It's kind of like saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, um, look at cows and then go over to a farm and look at horses. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you, you got to look at the thing that you say you're looking. You know what I mean? You can't just say, oh, I'm going to look at apples and, you know I mean, go to an orange tree and pick off oranges. If we're saying we're going to be looking at a type of hormone, we need to make sure that those hormones are actually there. You know, just making sure that we're doing proper method, like gold standard methodology. And as I said, as I said, it's really, really, it's really difficult to do this, but hopefully we're getting a little bit closer. But the key is there is to do proper hormonal verification so that we can be certain that what we're looking at is indeed what we're looking at. It's important to say these apples and these are apples, not here's some apples. Oh, we'll look at these oranges over here. We'll go to a farm, look at some sheep, look at the kangaroo. They're totally different animals, you know. So we need to be really sure that what we're doing is, um, yeah, what we say, what what we say we're investigating. So yeah, yeah, I love this. I love this. I'm sorry I put you in hard position to answer those like question, which I, <laughs> which I, I know I probably oversimplified those like because I was I was trying to like I was trying to like uh let some like coaches know how like try to know the basic so i probably yeah. oversimplified those questions sorry about that yeah mate like eric i think you're asking you're asking all the right questions though, aren't you mate like questions coaches want to know i was thinking about this today like i'm not a particularly smart individual like i i like i'm a dude who likes lifting weights and you know just seeing how fast people can run you know <laughs> like you know but i think where i've been um i've had success in my career but it's minor success i'm not jay-z or tupac or anything like you know i'm a very um i've had meager success um but the thing is is that um the thing that why i probably had that tiny bit of success in my career today 
even though I'm a relatively young researcher, is because we ask questions that are appropriate and relevant for coaches. It's got to be interesting and it's got to be useful. Can't just be interesting. It's got to be useful for coaches as well. And I, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, uh, you know, that, that the menstrual cycle research, while they're really exciting and all makes such a difference for females. Oh, it'll be so great. Oh, it'll be absolutely awesome. And we need more of this. We need to be more accepting of people in our lives um, and, and more understanding. Um, unfortunately, it's such a nuanced topic and we will get there. We'll get there soon. And hopefully Gabby and Maddie are going to make a real, real difference in this space. And we've got more awareness and awareness brings efforts. So um, unfortunately, we don't have an answer yet. Of course, we know that females don't feel, uh, sorry, some females don't feel great at different stages of the menstrual cycle. Hey, great. But we need to now find out how we can better support those individuals. If, if they don't, if, re realistically, if they all, if someone feels the same or feels great across the menstrual cycle, I, I don't reckon, um, I think our measures are too uh, crude. They're not sensitive enough to be able to quantify um, changes in, in individuals who are training great across the entire menstrual cycle. But um, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, that, that's a, try to simplify but it's such a complex question it's a great question but it's a it's a complex one nonetheless yeah so that's kind of all the question i have for today so if there's like uh coaches or like therapists are interested in the topic we're discussing today it's like really interesting topic where can they reach out to you the best place to reach out to me um yeah, yeah, yeah. Nowadays with our phones and emails and all these sorts of things, it's, you can you can pretty much reach reach out to me through a range of methods. Um, Twitter is always a good one. I think emails is always reliable. If I don't respond in emails quickly, just get me on a social media platform. It could be uh, an Instagram. It could be a Twitter. It could just be, uh, yeah, probably through those two methods is the most reliable. Um, but, you know, if you want to have a really in-depth chat, um email is our business for emails and a little bit of social interaction on social media but you know if you email me um i'll always try and respond quickly and if i don't respond quickly it means i probably haven't seen it and then get me on a twitter or a um or on an instagram instagram so and then uh just slant your dms it's uh, there's no there's no um there's no harm in doing that cool 